The annoying part isn't even that these people mess with the results or demand reruns until a satisfactory result is achieved. No, it's the fact that it's incredibly condescending to treat our work in data and analytics as useful only when it supports prevailing practices and theories. This is the Technical Marketing Handbook, a podcast where the host is occasionally joined by guests, but not today. Today our topic is motivation, or actually the lack thereof, and what solutions there could be. Welcome to the Technical Marketing Handbook. As always, I am your host, Simo Ahava, the co-founder of Simmer. Working with data can be so rewarding. From fixing data collection bugs to manufacturing quality hypotheses, from setting up global marketing data pipelines to embracing serendipitous discoveries, data can be a source of incredible thrills and heart palpitations. Especially during the current pandemic, it seems like data has been one of the big winners, if one can say that there are any winners in this day and age. Each published datum is dissected by connoisseurs and laypersons alike. Everyone and their uncle seems to know the ins and outs of prediction models, and new and inventive ways to approach static graph data are celebrated almost as much as the derived discoveries themselves. Let's face it, it's a good time to be working with data. It doesn't matter if you're in digital marketing, business intelligence, or the finance sector. You could be arranging the de-icing maneuvers in your local airport or drafting legislation to curb the use of data. The fact that you've chosen to take the data-informed path will reflect positively on you when this turbulent period is dissected in retrospection, sometime in the hope not too distant future. Having said that, this podcast episode is not a self-back-padding exercise. No, this is a therapy session primarily for me, but perhaps also for you. My truth is that over the last four or so years, it's been increasingly difficult to maintain excitement about working in data and analytics. For me, there are many reasons for this, and I'll explore each in this episode. I have, I have a feeling I'm not alone in my analysis. The reasons are, broadly, one, data itself is just a means to an end. Two, as data can often be an honest window into the inner mechanisms of organizations and companies, data and analytics work seem to be only supported when they treat the surrounding structures in a positive light. Three, the hard work of those who gather the data can be trampled on by those who present the results, and vice versa. And four, the meta-discussion around data collection and processing is exhausting and divisive. I promise there will be a positive twist somewhere in the middle or maybe towards the end, but most of the remaining episode will be shrouded in the type of doom and gloom only someone from Finland can exude. And we'll get back to the sullen mood after these cheerful words from our sponsor. Are you a marketing or a data professional looking to skill up? 
take a look at the online courses Simmer has to offer at teamsimmer.com. The courses are completely self-paced and your enrollment will grant you lifetime access to the material, including any updates. Go to teamsimmer.com and use the coupon code HANDBOOK to get 10% off your course purchase. That's teamsimmer.com. Data is almost always a byproduct. It's produced by side effects of the service it measures. For example, when you collect data from a checkout flow on an e-commerce website, the checkout flow is the primary feature and data is just a way to symptomize the events that happen within. Naturally, for some professions, data is the be-all, end-all of their scope of their work. A data engineer, for example, tasked to optimize a data pipeline, has their measure of success related to the throughput of the data itself and not what that data actually measures. But even in this case, the data is still produced by something else. In digital marketing and analytics, this is extremely salient. When we tag a site or an app, we are collecting telemetry from features, coverage and usage to identify whether or not our campaigns work or the full capabilities of our services are being utilized. The measurement is tagged to the feature itself, literally, and almost always as a side effect. A side effect here means that the purpose of the feature isn't to generate the data. Rather, data generation comes as an extra task, often a costly and superfluous one. The fact that data is just a means to an end entails that those of us whose sphere of work does begin and end with data itself might find it difficult to present our achievements to the larger organization around us. The success we have in building a data collection machine or improving a data pipeline can be easily construed as baseline by the rest of the organization who see the gradients of data quality as binary. There's good data and there's bad data. If the data engineer manages to collect good data, they've done what they were paid to do. There's no reason to celebrate it further. But we know how nuanced data collection is. We know how it's often an uphill battle to even introduce data collection to the service. We know there's a thousand shades of gray between the elusive good data and the notorious bad data. So when we manage to build a data collection mechanism that finally elucidates all the traits and flaws of the service itself, it should be a cause for celebration, but it rarely is. Yes, a shiny dashboard will get you some oohs and ahs from the organization, but as a data professional, your success is still intrinsically bound to the success of whatever it is that you are measuring. And this can be very demotivational. It's easy to be dismissed as just a necessity that generates data for dashboards. Someone who's easy to replace once the next shiny tool comes along that purports to do the data collection automatically, intelligently, and with accuracy no human could strive to achieve. Data is just a means to an end. Those of us whose task it is to cultivate data can feel suppressed due to only working with exhaust fumes from the features themselves. 
And this is something I've struggled with numerous times over the years, and luckily it's also something I've managed to overcome. The reason why data is often dismissed as an afterthought is because many organizations lose the ability to see what shape their business would be in without the elegant data pipeline you've helped build. Your work is easy to take for granted because data is generated everywhere, and it is everywhere. Your expertise lies in taking this chaotic and disarrayed abundance of bits and bytes and turning it into something useful. One great way to overcome this motivation slump is to introduce methods and processes that make data more than just a side effect. Experimentation is one such thing, as it introduces feedback loops that wouldn't exist without the data input. Similarly, use data for discovery in addition to just for hypothesis validation or for gazing in the rearview mirror. You can mine that information to find clues about your organization that would have gone unnoticed without your data collection efforts. Use data to find opportunities, to explore broken campaigns, to feed into content generation, to facilitate customer success journeys, and so on. Show the organization that even though data is just a means to an end, it can also be the driving force of decision-making within the organization. And also, even though it is the feature itself whose success is celebrated rather than the side effects it generates, it doesn't mean you can't participate in the celebration. Drop the ego and remember that you are part of a team that produces these results. The feature's success and the team's success are yours to share equally. Finally, embrace your work with data and try to find out new ways of building your career. Become a data engineer, look into automation, into report generation, into hit validation, into server-side processes. Do your best to minimize cost and maximize throughput. Don't fall into the stagnation trap and remember that complacency is debilitating. Introducing your data and analytics work to the surrounding organizational structures does have its drawbacks. I once worked for a large retailer here in Finland and we were building a new e-commerce store with all the bells and whistles of a modern tech stack. Amazingly, our team had gotten full support all the way from the board of directors to introduce a growth mindset to the work. And we were busy building experimentation models and templates for rigorous design testing. Many of the experiment results we ended up with were accepted without question successes, failures, and inconclusive results alike. But occasionally we would arrive at a result that the organization, or incredulously, the board of directors were not happy with. In these cases, when presenting the results, we were either tasked to present the results in such a light that turned the disproved hypotheses into roadmap items instead. In other words, we had to lie in order to satisfy the intuition-driven interpretations from the higher-ups. Or sometimes the experiment result was overruled entirely because it was not accepted by these directors. Sometimes these know-it-alls themselves added ridiculous experiment designs to our backlog, of course prioritized past everything else that we had carefully designed. 
This was the ultimate case of the hippo effect, where the highest paid person's opinions invalidated all our expertise. In essence, our work was only validated when it was presented in such a way as to make the organization look good. This, I think, is familiar to those working in analytics. It's also typical of organizations that existed long before data-informed methodologies were introduced into the midst. It's difficult to let go of a legacy of intuition, anecdotal evidence, qualitative market research and pure good luck. I'm not saying those are the only things that explain the success of generational com companies, but they are the things that introduce friction when data and analytics processes are presented as additional forward driving forces. This is particularly demotivating because it implies that what we do with data is optional. It's very reminiscent of the conspiracy theories raging rampant in the world today, where terms like alternative facts and fake news are being thrown around. We can show with utmost clarity how the data reflects a very carefully defined corner of reality, only to be overruled by someone with more chevrons in their sleeve. If hippos are involved, it's very difficult to overcome this problem. One of your only hopes at that point is to get help from managers and other directors to isolate your work so that stakeholders higher up in the organization can't directly mess or interact with your processes. Try to reason with data. Show how you arrived at the results. Explain how it's statistically unlikely for the result to change with reruns. And clarify how messing with backlog prioritization can cascade into catastrophic delays elsewhere. When a higher-up trivializes your hard work, it can be very damaging to your confidence. I've quit client work numerous times when I found that I was hired only as a yes-man, or when my efforts were replaced by an afterthought from someone who couldn't tell what a conversion was even if explained to them like they were five years old. Quitting is of course the easy way out. More constructive would be to try your best to show that data-informed efforts will, in the long run, prove more reliable than gut-driven development. Sometimes organizations just don't have enough maturity to tackle the types of things that data can reveal. In those cases, your best option is to start small. Make sure your team, your product, your service is utilizing data properly and ignore what happens outside your little sphere of influence. Find micro-successes, inspire and gain confidence around you. When you have enough case studies to support your data-informed theses, you can then take the results to the next silo in your organization or to the next tier in the hierarchy. Toxicity comes in many shapes and sizes, and an organization that trivializes and patronizes the hard work of its constituents is particularly hideous. Your work matters. You matter. Don't allow your expertise to be questioned by people who do not understand it. While sometimes the organization is perfectly tuned to accept data-informed processes and your work is appreciated and supported day in, day out. But occasionally there are silos in the organization separating the work of those who collect and process the data from those who present the results. 
The longer the physical and or mental distance between these two ends of the data pipeline, the more disjointed the harmony of the data process is. This, as many of the things I've been talking about today, is by the way a direct consequence of Conway's law, which I explored in episode 10 of this podcast. The inability to communicate within the organization leads to the inability to produce coherent results. Anyway, the result of these patchy pipelines is that blemishes in the data throughput are not interpreted correctly by those building the reports, and thus the results are associated with successes and failures that don't actually have a foothold in reality. If I had a penny every time I've had to deflate the celebrations of an uptick in conversions just because they resulted from me fixing something in the data collection and not actually due to an increase in conversions, well, I'd have a lot of pennies which wouldn't be very useful in the euro country that Finland is, but I digress. Unlike the previous reasons for demotivation, in this case we're not talking about an oppressive organization or the dangers of misinterpretation or even about trivialization of my work as a data engineer. Instead, the main annoyance here is that I, as someone working with data, have allowed the situation to deteriorate so that lack of communication is resulting in potentially dangerous decisions. These silos emerge in particular within organizations that outsource or externalize the data analysis and reporting work. It's difficult to communicate the nuances of the data pipeline to stakeholders who are only present in monthly reporting calls, if even then. It's horrible to see how the data you have collected and incubated is mishandled in such a way, and it's even worse because often you are just as much to blame as those drawing the wrong conclusions. After all, communication is a multi-lane highway rather than a one-way mule trail. Luckily, the solution is simple, and I discussed this extensively in episode 10, and you should really listen to it. Add more communication. Have weekly or even daily meetings with everyone involved in the data process. Document transparently and provide tools for those working with data to validate it before drafting their conclusions. And whatever you do, don't fall into the trap of playing along with this broken process. It's extremely easy to scrape respect from your organization by showing that I did my work well. It's them that screwed it up. Most likely many people in the organization don't see the data pipeline as modular as you do. All they see are the results. If you tell them that the results are flawed, they'll question the validity of the entire data process. And if you choose to withhold the full story, you'll have intentionally damaged your organization. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. At least until you take the time to actually repair the communication structures and fix the disconnect between different parts of the organization. Participating in that process itself can be super motivational. Patching broken communication structures can be extremely rewarding in itself. Often when you introduce more communication within the organization, the multiplicative effects are resounding. For me personally, this last demotivational factor I wanted to talk about is probably the most pressing one. I'm very sensitive to the dichotomies that are bountiful in the digital marketing industry, especially when it comes to data. 
it's so exhausting to follow the discourse between privacy advocates and ad tech lobbyists, between Google Chrome engineers and Apple WebKit developers, between Python versus R, between Google versus Adobe, between first party versus third party, between white hat versus black hat, between link building versus relationship building, and so on and so forth. I just want to collect data. I just want to engineer a beautiful data pipeline. Perhaps you just want to build a marketing campaign or write code into a mobile app. Or perhaps you just want to help organizations achieve growth or discover the next big innovation in your field. But the number of things we are expected to pay attention to while going about our daily work can at times feel overwhelming. When collecting data, almost any data, my little brain is struggling with questions like these. Is there a legal basis for collecting the data? Is there consent to access storage? Is there a way to collect data if the answer to the previous two questions was no? Does this work across browsers? Does this work across privacy protections in different browsers? Will this work across browsers in one month, in five months, in a year? Does this have third-party dependencies which can introduce downstream harm on my work and my reputation? Who is responsible for this work? Who is held accountable? And that's just part of the laundry list of things I need to be wary of, or at least that I think I need to be wary of. Organizations, of course, have people and processes in place to handle these questions for me, but not always, especially as I'm most often a consultant. As the person working with data, I'm expected to follow, or at least to know, what the current status of these friction mechanisms is. Yes, these questions are very important. I'm not saying I'm against having to ponder these issues. But it's very, very demotivational to have to chase ever-changing goalposts without compromising the quality of my work. Often these constraints are also either unrealistic or too vague to help me perform my tasks. I end up going down rabbit holes and trying to make sense of circular reasoning abundant in the numerous online articles written about privacy legislation or browser features or Apple's App Store policies, for example. All I want to do is write code. That's literally all I want to do at this point of my professional career. Yet I find most of my time spent with debating the ins and outs of some legal minutiae that even the so-called experts who made the interpretations can agree on. Well, the solution is simple. Just focus on the work itself. It's not my job to be aware of all this minutiae around my work. But at the same time, it's good to feel pressure to learn more about the context of what you do. For example, if you're working with data and you don't understand the basics of legal frameworks for collecting personal data, or why you see all those constant pop-ups everywhere you go, you're lagging behind your peers. Even though the meta discussion itself is exhaustive, you can choose how much to participate in it. Consider it as a source of motivation rather than discouragement. You have an excuse, a reason to learn more, and often you have the blessing of your employer and the support of your colleagues to understand your operational environment better. I struggle with motivation so often. Most of it is just the realization that what I do just isn't very significant or align with what's actually important to me. It's difficult to maintain excitement about working with data when all I want to do is work on my family instead. 
It's difficult to take seriously the pains an organization has with their search engine campaigns when the world around them is shut down in the middle of a pandemic. It's difficult to discuss conversion rates with a straight face when I'm worried about what type of a world my children will live in when they grow up. At the same time, I think this detachment has ironically made me even more industrious. The lack of motivation in one area has prompted me to find growth elsewhere. This, I think, is one of the best cures for when you feel like your career is stagnating or when you don't think you are receiving the respect you deserve. Keep expanding your portfolio, accumulate new skills, explore problems from new vantage points, and become a source of inspiration rather than technical debt in your organization. I'm fully aware that I come from a place of privilege in observing this. I know that there are people out there who feel like they can't or are too afraid to make a change in their environment in order to tackle motivational constraints. Luckily, there are many ways to compensate for demotivation in your professional life. You can build new skills, you can request new responsibilities in your company, you can apply for rotation to try different things, or you can do what I do, derive motivation from something completely unrelated to your work. If I'm ever in a rut and feel like what I do just isn't significant, I put more focus on the areas of my life where my impact is more immediate, such as when I'm with my family. Naturally, if there are elements in your professional life that make you feel down or unworthy, you need to tackle these, especially if they impact others around you too. Demotivation is often a symptom of larger problems in your environment, and if you're feeling irrelevant or if your work is trivialized, chances are you have colleagues and peers who feel the same way. Your work matters. You matter. It's okay to celebrate even the small stuff. You get to decide just how much to extend the scope of your experience, and you get to decide how to celebrate success and learn from failure. No, the fact that you managed to fix the conversion rate problem in your Google Analytics property probably isn't going to be celebrated on the same, same level as when Elon Musk launches a rocket into space or scientists develop vaccines to help us return to normalcy. But that's okay. You didn't set out to colonize other planets or to win medical prizes. Your work matters. You matter. Remember that no matter how long you've been doing what you've been doing, you've only just scratched the surface of potential in your chosen profession or discipline. There's a world of discovery waiting for you, and if you feel demotivated, it's often due to complacency and stagnation. It's up to you to devote the time to break through these plateaus. And if you feel like your current work is just a stepping stone to something greater and anything related to your current job just doesn't move a single emotion muscle in you, well, that's quite fine. We've all been there. You've chosen to sacrifice motivation now in order to chase your breakthrough soon. But until then, you need to make the most of it. Who knows, perhaps your current work isn't as trivial as you think it is, and there are discoveries to be made within your everyday routines too. Your work matters. You matter. And with these sappy words, I end this particularly anecdotal and personal podcast episode. I thank you for your motivation to follow along, and hopefully we can get back on topic soon, lest this podcast turn into a personal emotion journal of mine. 
See you in a couple of weeks with the next episode. Until then, as always, take care and stay safe.